Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board has a short but somewhat turbulent history. One chairman was forced out for mismanagement. Another resigned early because the White House proposed getting rid of the board altogether. More recently, things have stabilized. In the latest Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey scores, engagement at the Chemical Safety Board rose by 29 percent. So we decided to get an update, and I'm joined now by the chairman, Steve Owens. Mr. Owens, good to have you with us. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. And let's begin just by maybe a quick review of what the Chemical Safety Board, the CSB, actually does. Well, that's a great question. You know, the Chemical Safety Board, actually the official name is the U.S. Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, which is a mouthful, but uh, it's probably the most important agency that uh, most people have never heard of in the federal government. But our mission is to uh, investigate uh, chemical accidents and hazards that result from the production, processing, and handling of chemical substances at facilities. Now, those are because the Chemical Safety Board was created as part of the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments. Our mission is focused on what are called stationary sources, basically things that don't move. (laughs) So if it's refinery or production facility, or in some cases, even a pipeline, we have uh, authority to investigate it. If it's moving items, such as the train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio earlier this year, um, we don't have jurisdiction over that. That's the NTSB. We also, in our statute and our regulations, you'll focus on specific types of incidents and more categorical in terms of uh, whether there's a fatality, a serious injury, or substantial property damage. So we have to look at a variety of factors when we uh, deploy to a scene to investigate something that has gone wrong. Sure. So maybe the closest parallel would be the National Transportation Safety Board that you kind of mobilize and go there when something happens, because plants do blow up once in a while. They catch on fire, too, (laughs) sometimes. But yeah, the NTSB is a great analogy. And in fact, the CSB was modeled on the NTSB when it was created back in 1990. Now, they're a a different entity. They're much larger. Uh, They have 10 times as many employees and 10 times as much money as we do in, in a very, very, very broad jurisdiction. And we work very closely with them. But the way our relationship with the NTSB works is if they determine that they have jurisdiction over a matter, then we step back. But sometimes we will both go into an accident investigation, unsure of what the cause is or exactly who is supposed to be in charge. And then we work that out as things move forward. All right. And you are classified by OPM in the FEV scores and generally as a very small agency. How many people work there? (laughs) Well, as of today, we have 41 uh, employees, a couple of more are starting right at the end of calendar year 23, and then there's a couple of more that we've made offers to have accepted and are going through the onboarding process, background checks, things like that. So by early next year, we'll be up to around 45 or so, and our hope and goal is during this fiscal year, fiscal year 24, that by the end of the fiscal year, we'll be up uh, around, if not above, 50 employees. It doesn't sound like much compared to other agencies where I worked, for example, like uh, EPA, where I worked during the Obama administration. But for the CSB, that's a big deal. When our previous chairperson resigned at the end of July of uh, 2022, we had 30 employees at the time. So some people have left. The chairperson left. A couple of her political appointees left. 
So we've had some departures, but we've hired a, a lot of people since that time. And the agency's really, as we like to say, we're in the process of rebuilding and revitalizing the agency. Sure. And it really is beginning. The agency is really beginning to move forward in a very positive way. And there is an appointed board, but I imagine the bulk of the staff has some technical expertise in different areas of chemical safety and chemical processing behavior and chemical effects? Absolutely. The majority of the employees at the CSB right now, and as it will be going forward, are individuals who work in our Office of Investigations and Recommendations. And many of them, in fact, almost all of them are chemical engineers. They have chemical engineering degrees, some undergraduate degrees, but some both undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in chemical engineering we have some attorneys on staff in our Office of General Counsel. We also have a number of administrative staff who are mostly focused in the Washington, D.C. area. There are probably about a dozen or so, as of this point, administrative staff that we have. But again, the majority of the uh, individuals who work at the CSB are uh, chemical engineers or people with very uh, significant technical skills because what they have to do is go out and look at a, a refinery or a chemical production facility that's had an explosion or a fire or some other a major uh, catastrophe occur, and uh, piecing it all together to figure out what went wrong. We're speaking with Steve Owens. He's chairman of the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, and you personally have a history of managing environmental organizations, EPA, and also in the state of Arizona. So the scores, the Employee Engagement Global Satisfaction scores went up 28 percent. Engagement score went up 29 percent in the most recent survey. What have you done there, do you think, to make people feel more engaged? What's changed? Thank you for asking about that, Tom, because that's something that we're very proud of when those results came out. When I became the, kind of a funny term, the interim executive, which was essentially the acting chair when our former chairperson, then I was confirmed as the full chair in December of 2022. But morale at the agency was very low. People were fairly disheartened because of a lot of things, not the least of which you mentioned uh, when the former president had tried to abolish it. And you know, that'll, uh, that'll give you something to think about if you're working at an agency, the president zeroes out your budget. But there were a lot of other things that were going on under the previous leadership at the agency. And so We've done a number of different things. I think uh, from a global perspective, the most important thing is you treat employees with respect. You listen to them. You uh, recognize that these are very talented and dedicated career employees, some of whom have been at the agency a long time. And so when Sylvia Johnson, who was the other board member who was confirmed at the time I was in early 22 when I first came on the board, uh, when we first joined the CSB, we spent some time uh, doing kind of get to know you sessions. You know, we, uh, our staff is scattered all across the country. We have some in DC, but the majority of the staff at the CSB are not in DC. They're all across the United States. We even have a staff person in Alaska. So we did these virtual get to know you sessions, which were very, very, very important, mostly talking to people about who they are, what their background is, who what their families are, you know, what their families are like rather, and what they care about. And then after the change in leadership, we sort of did a go back and did a how you doing, <laughs> you know, series of sessions with people just to see what was on their mind. And that was very helpful to uh, board member Johnson and myself in that regard. And then we've got a new board member, uh, Kathy Sandoval, who joined us in February of 2023. You know, she's been very active in terms of communicating with the staff as well. But from a process point of view, one of the, I think the most important stuff we did was sort of make clear what our priorities are for the agency to give some direction to the staff, set expectations, uh, and hold people accountable. But 
didn't get out of their way. <laughs> you know, I learned in the time that I've been doing these kinds of jobs, as you indicated, I was the uh, director of the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality uh, when Janet Napolitano was our governor. And then during the Obama administration, I was head of the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention. And even way before that, I started my career working for uh, Al Gore. I'm originally from Tennessee, and I was on his staff in D.C. in both the House and Senate. But I was his chief of staff in the state of Tennessee. We had slightly under 20 staff scattered all across the state of Tennessee. So when and this was back in the 1980s with all our offices when he was in the Senate. So essentially, we were all kind of working virtually at that point anyway, because I had to spend a lot of time on the telephone or getting in the car and driving to Memphis or Jackson, Tennessee or Knoxville or Chattanooga or the Tri-Cities or wherever to try to manage a staff that wasn't all in one place. So I learned a lot about how to do things right and, and learned a lot about what not to do when you're a manager through those positions. I've been very, very fortunate in my life in that regard. My guest is Steve Owens, chairman of the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, and you were telling us some of the changes you've made to make employees more satisfied at work. Uh, The other thing is when I became the acting chairperson, and then when we had the change in leadership, we did a number of things to get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy. I mean, it seems sort of hard to talk about or unusual to talk about a very small agency without that many people having a large bureaucracy, but we certainly did. At that time, I had never seen so much bureaucracy in terms of making people's jobs more difficult than they ought to be in terms of the way things had to be reported up, the way things had to be cleared, the number of people who had to sign off on things, including investigation reports and just the paperwork and the Paperwork is one thing, but also the sense that people have no discretion over their area of expertise, I think, may be the fundamental factor there. Well, and you kind of read my mind. That was the next thing I was going to mention was that while we were doing that, you know, you want to um, get rid of the bureaucracy and stop looking over their shoulders and not micromanage them, which certainly what was going on when I came on the board from the the chairperson and, and the team that she had in place. And many employees, as you just mentioned, Tom, did not feel that they had the discretion or the authority to do the jobs the way that they thought they ought to be done. And it kind of goes to the point I said about just getting out of people's way. Now, you got to pay attention, but on the other hand, you have to assume these folks know what they're doing, <laughs> you know, since they uh, had some time at the agency and they've got great backgrounds uh, and were qualified in the first place. And that's worked out pretty well for us so far. We've seen that, you know, people are getting, being very efficient at getting their jobs done. People are working more closely together in teams, certainly in ways differently from the way that they did before. And the proof is in the pudding. In addition to the uh, viewpoint survey results that you pointed to, Tom, we just completely cleared up the longstanding backlog of investigation reports that had plagued this agency for many years. Again, when Sylvia Johnson and I came on the board, there was a backlog of 17 open investigations and reports that had not yet been issued, some dating all the way back to 2016. And as of December 26th, we just issued the 17th and final report uh, in the backlog. And I think not only is that a good thing for the agency, but it's a good thing for the employees themselves because they got it done. You know, they rolled up their sleeves. They knew it was going to be hard. They knew they were going to have to put some sweat equity into the project, but we were all in it together. And while I think there were some folks both inside and outside the agency who thought, yeah, really, we'll believe that when we see it in terms (laughs) of getting rid of the... uh, the backlog, we did it. Just a detailed yeah. question. You said the backlog was cleared as of the 26th of December. 
people yeah. didn't have to work on Christmas Day to do that. Maybe no, they worked the 24th. No. We, uh, we gave them that day off. We released it on the 26th. I should have actually approved the prior week, but we released it on the 26th. It's just in terms of the public uh, awareness of it. It came out on the 26th. Final question. You like the job, sounds like. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's a great job. You know, you go through um, a process. I actually raised my hand and asked for this job. And I'll be frank, I was told by uh, the White House when uh, you know, my presidential appointee had to be confirmed by the Senate and all that fun stuff. But I asked uh, to be appointed to the Chemical Safety Board. Didn't ask to be chair, but that just kind of happened, you know. But and to be frank, uh, during the initial process, uh, I was told by the uh, the presidential personnel office, you know, we don't get too many people who actually volunteer to serve on the on the chemical safety board, given, you know, all the issues that the board has had, you know, over the years and the challenges that it's faced. But I had I've been aware of the agency uh, for many years, uh, going all the way back to my days as the Arizona DEQ director, because they investigated uh, a site in Arizona while I was the director there. And of course, at EPA running the chemical safety office, you sort of pay attention to the CSB. But I was also, to be frank, disheartened to see all the things that the agency, in particular, the employees of the agency were having to go through uh, over the years. You know, as you indicated, it didn't just start with the previous administration. It went back a number of years. And so to be able to work with the team that we have here and to be able to get done what we've been able to get done so far has really been a, a treat. And uh, we're all very excited because now that we've got the backlog completed, uh, people are feeling much better about the agency, feeling good about the jobs that they are doing. But we've got a real opportunity to do some uh, very important things in the year ahead. We are speaking with Steve Owens, chairman of the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board. You know, and maybe the big lesson here is that in a very small agency, leadership has maybe a lot more leverage over the scores. I mean, when you take an agency like Homeland Security, a couple of hundred thousand employees, the leadership is so distant from the average workaday line employee that a lot of turmoil can happen that doesn't really seep down to that level. So their scores kind of bump along up three points, down three points. At a place like the CSB, you can go from basement to stellar because one person or two people, maybe the board, can have a big effect when there's only 40 people, in effect, voting each year. Well, you know, that's a great point. I will tell you, um, you know, what I've thought a lot about, you know, because this is a different type of agency from the ones I worked at before, the Arizona DEQ. At Arizona DEQ, we had about 700 employees when I was the director there at EPA. In the office I was in charge of, it was between 12 and 1,300 employees. So it's just a different experience. And that was another reason why I was very interested in joining the CSB because it is small, because you get to know the people on a much greater personal level. The upside is that you can spend time with them. You understand what's going on more on a day-to-day basis. As you indicated, you can really, if something's going wrong, you can help fix it very quickly. And the downside is that because it's so small, if one person's having a bad day, <laughs> you know, or, or is off his or her game, you know, it can have a much more uh, impactful ripple effect on an agency like the CSB than it did at EPA or the Arizona uh, DEQ. So the other thing that we kind of going back to your very first question, but one of the other things that we've really tried to do and maintain is keep people talking to each other in this day and age where people all too readily fire off emails <laughs> that maybe they shouldn't. 
what we've said is, look, you know, pick up the phone if you've got a question or a concern or a problem, um, or you just don't understand something rather than spending the time to write an email and then maybe send one that you shouldn't. In addition to that, we've really put a premium on getting people together. We reinstituted senior staff meetings, which are all the supervisory staff in the agency, but we're doing them more frequently. We do them on a weekly basis now. We started, uh, I know they did them once in a while, but we really started regular monthly virtual all hands meetings because we have staff scattered all across the country. So we do that every month. And then we started in person all hands meetings on a, a twice yearly basis to get the whole team together or at least everybody who's able to travel to come to an in-person meeting and and so far the reviews on that have been pretty good sometimes some people can't make it sometimes folks are busy but and the whole point of that is for people to get to know each other better to spend time talking to each other outside of a work context but also if they've got things that they just want to figure out about what other people do in the agency, uh, they had the opportunity to, to raise them on the calls, the virtual calls, the video calls we have, or to uh, address it face-to-face during our in-person meetings. You know, the bottom line on a lot of this, and I, it sounds a little trite, but what I say to the people at uh, the CSB is I see my job, and I think I see everybody else's job, is to make everyone else's job easier. You know, what is it that I can do on a daily basis that's going to make uh, them be able to get their jobs done in a way that takes the least amount of time and uh, the least amount of stress, but also all the stuff that goes along that you have to put up with in an agency like ours, whether it's, you know, the filling out the forms, you know, getting reimbursed for travel or, you know, things like that, that we can make simpler and clearer to people and get it done more quickly so that you don't sure. spend as much time spinning your wheels on, on non-productive activities. And, so. and you strike me as a guy that probably doesn't throw typewriters or slam phones or swear out loud a lot. <laughs> uh, occasionally, every now and then, I could get a little... Uh, that's when I usually put myself on mute <laughs> on the calls. But uh, yeah, well, you had to sort of just kind of roll with it from time to time. And, uh, you know, like anybody, I can get kind of wound up from uh, every now and then. But by and large, it's a great group of people uh, at the CSB. Some of them, as I said, have been there a long time. So they have the benefit of the history that they can share with newer employees, not so much younger, but newer employees. But I, I will tell you, Tom, that one of the things that uh, I realized very early on is that there is an upside also to having so many newer employees at an agency because they weren't around when all that crazy stuff was going on a, a number of years ago. And they, they came to the CSB to do their job. I, I, there were several employees, and I'll be frank, uh, that I was surprised uh, to hear it from them, but they said that working at the CSB was their dream job, that these were people who worked either in the petroleum industry or in a chemical manufacturing uh, facility or something like that. And they had watched the CSB over the years, seen the great work that it had done. And when the opportunity to apply for a position uh, arose, they jumped on it. Now, one of the older challenges that the agency had historically that we're still trying to fix is how dead gum long it takes to actually hire people. <laughs> you know, it's like well, that's universal. There's a lot of hoops. You know, a lot of hoops you got to jump through just to hire somebody to a, uh, at an agency like this. And so, um, but we're working to improve that process as well. So. Steve Owens is chairman of the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and I hope uh, hope this has been of some help to people out there. So. 
And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.